Greetings, saints. It's good to be with you again. It's been a while, and I've been thinking about carefully this, what I'm going to share with you. And you know I've done two podcasts on this eschatology, uh, and then I did one on Christmas recently. But this is the third in the series on eschatology. And I've entitled this podcast, Killing Revelation, How You Have Been Robbed of the Book You Need. Now, the book of Revelation has gone from being the most quoted book by the early church to the book that is least read and most misunderstood. Someone once said that the two scriptures that Satan hates most are the first three chapters of Genesis and then the whole book of Revelation. And the reason is that these reveal the schemes and activities of the evil one against God, his kingdom, his purposes, his plans, and his people. But they also reveal how God comes forth on behalf of his people, defeats the evil one, undoes his schemes, and is victorious and gives his people victory. Now, the book of Revelation is critically, critically important for three things. The first is that without the book of Revelation, you cannot have a complete biblical worldview. Now, what I mean by that is that a biblical worldview answers four questions. First, why is the world the way it is? Second, what is the nature of the conflict in the world between good and evil? Third, what is the Lord's perspective, purpose, and plan in the midst of this conflict? And fourthly, how are we called to walk and participate in the midst of this conflict? The, The second important, critical importance of the book of Revelation is for a biblical Christology. You can't have a complete biblical Christology without the book of Revelation. In the Old Testament, the, the character of Christ comes out. It's, it's hidden, but it's there. Uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in Acts, in, in many of the letters, you, you see a vision of who Jesus is. But only in the book of Revelation do we see Jesus as the rider on the white horse who comes back to carry out the final wrath of God and to defeat the enemies of God and his people. And that is a critical way that we have to look at Jesus. And one of the things that I see happening today is that Jesus is being redefined to to match the worldview of the world system. Do you hear what I'm saying? People are redefining the character of Jesus to make him fit in to the worldview of the world system so they can justify what they do by calling on the name of Jesus. Have you ever wondered when Jesus said this, many will come in my name claiming I am he. I wonder if what's meant by that is this. There are many people that are coming claiming to represent Jesus and claiming that Jesus is who who they worship and and he's real, uh, but but they misrepresent who he is. It's it's something to think about. Now, the, the third reason that the book of Revelation is critically important is that 
because it's a handbook for understanding and dealing with oppression and persecution and tribulation. Now, the perspective of Revelation, and indeed all of Scripture, is that the people of God will experience tribulation throughout the ages, including the last tribulation, which ushers in the return of the king. And why it's important for you to understand these three things, a biblical worldview, uh, a biblical Christology, and, and uh, uh, to see the book of Revelation as a handbook for understanding the oppression and persecution and tribulation that you face is this, that we may not be in the last of the end times. No one knows when that is. But I believe because of what's happening in the world, which is on a great scale, never seen before, and especially what's happening in our country is that we are headed for some very dark times. And the problem is, is, that, is that the immorality and perversion uh, and the attack that comes against uh, the image of God today, and I'm going to go into this in great detail in the next podcast, uh, it, America is leading the way in this. And the, the policies that, that are being written into law in America are those things that the Bible says are the reason why the wrath of God is coming. And so we may not be in the last of the last, but I believe that our country is in the last of the last. Uh, and you can see it even now how many, many ways, if you're a Christian, and you make a stand for Judeo-Christian principles, and you say no to the things that are happening, you are labeled as so many things, a hater, um, a bigot, far right wing, and here's the new one, a Christian nationalist, which is just ridiculous. Uh, but the world loves to label you if you simply want to stand for who Christ really is and what his word really teaches. So I want to begin to, to look at what scripture, and especially the book of Revelation, says about this last time, uh, the great tribulation, because the, the seeds of it are here without a doubt, and, and they may be just seeds, but they are growing and, and I wonder if the blossoming of those seeds is not far off. Uh, but first, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Well, I want to go over six things. The sense of the book of Revelation the myth of the seven years, Revelation's dramatic time frame, the missing church, the great deception, and the church, and the wrath of God. All right, these six things. The sense of the book of Revelation, the myth of the seven years, Revelation's dramatic time frame, the missing church, the great deception, and the church, and the wrath of God. 
Now, the first thing that we want to look at is the sense of the book of Revelation. And, and the first thing of, under this is the approach. What is the pr- approach of the book of Revelation? And it tells us in verse 1 and 2. This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, who God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, language is really important, and and the Greek here... um, explain something that we need to see. That's why it's important to say, what, what does this say? Let me look at it. And the, word, the, the, the phrase, he made it known, means to make known by the use of signs or symbols. It's really important. That's how he made it known, that all of the truths that God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, given to the angel that came to John, and John B. saw them and wrote them down, the purpose or the approach was this, to make known by the use of signs or symbols. Symbols. The whole book of Revelation is about signs and symbols, and we have to recognize and understand the signs and the symbols, and we have to realize that these signs and symbols are centered in Old Testament imagery. You cannot look at the book of Revelation and try and uh, understand it without taking what is taught there and looking back and seeing uh, the type that is in the Old Testament. And this happens over and over again. And also, the approach is that it's apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Ezekiel. And in order to understand it, you have to read it from that perspective. You can't read it as a historical book or as the, the, uh, the Gospels are read or even as the book of Acts or even the other letters are read. It's unique. Uh, it is apocalyptic literature and it has to be underst- understood that way. It's really important. Now, the second thing that I want you to see under, under the, uh, the approach of the book or how to approach the book or the sense of the book is that the purpose of the book and again, Revelation just, it just tells us in verse 9, John says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he's saying to them, to those churches that were going to receive his letter and to us who read it, that here I'm partner with you in these three things. First, I'm partner with you in tribulation. He was in tribulation. He was exiled on an island. All of those churches were in tribulation. There was great persecution going on. And, and John wants to know, listen, I'm with you in it. And then he says, listen, but the kingdom of God is here. And you need to have patient endurance. And isn't that a great message? Listen. Uh, And again, if you desire to be a biblical Christian, uh, if churches desire to be biblical, uh, and and again, the, the, the apostate church is rising up more and more, but churches that want to be biblical, they're going to face tribulation, but the kingdom's gonna come forth, and those saints, those churches need 
to have patient endurance throughout all generation. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I want to look at is the myth of the seven years. Because everyone, if you were to ask them, well, tell me about the tribulation. They'll say, oh, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the Lord is going to come back. Uh, and we're going to all be taken away. And we're going to spend seven years up in heaven. And then at the end of those seven years, we're going to come back. And God's going to you know, do all the, all the stuff. And, and every, you know, most people, unless, unless they studied scriptures, they've heard that so much uh, that they would just repeat that. And they've heard it through books, they've heard it through movies, they've heard it through many preachers. But here's the thing, it's a myth. I know, I know it sounds almost heretical that I would say that, that it's a myth. But listen to this, there is no mention, and I want you to hear me very clearly, there is no mention of a seven-year tribulation, not in the book of Revelation, not in any of the letters, not in any of the Gospels. In fact, the only thing that Jesus says, he says this, unless the time was shortened, the saints couldn't endure it. That's the only thing he says. It's not, uh, it was never uh, referred to by any of the church fathers, those who, who were discipled by the original apostles. So where does the idea come from? Okay, where? Well, it might interest you to know that there's one single passage in the book of Daniel where this whole teaching comes from. One single passage, one, one verse actually. And so I want to look at that because I want you to be well-informed and know how to communicate the truth because you see the truth. And that is in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Okay, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And I will read it. You can follow along uh, if you want to turn there. I pause this and turn there. But listen, I'm going to read verse 24 first. Seventy-seven, okay, it's, some translations have weeks, but the, in the Hebrew it's just sevens. Um, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, okay? Uh, the Hebrew has most holy, all right, not most holy place, like some, some uh, translations will say most holy place, but it, it just says most holy, and we'll talk about uh, why it should be left that way. Now, I want you to notice the time period. There are 70 sevens, all right, that's 490 years. And I want you to notice who this is written to, the people, and it's about the city. And the purpose of, of this 490 years is, is to do certain things. To rebuild the city, but to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. We'll see what that last one means in a, in a minute. But I want you to see that the purpose of of the, the 490 years is to accomplish certain things. And it is to atone for sin, put an end to sin, uh, to atone for wickedness, to bring in um, 
everlasting righteousness uh, and and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Really important theological things are going to happen in that time. Now, let me read now verse 25 of Daniel 9. Know and understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. All right, so it's 69 sevens, so that's 483 years. And it starts with a decree when the decree is issued by Cyrus. And you can look up when that was, and you can just add the years and see that that at the end of those 483 years is the time of Christ. And it, it stops with the coming of the anointed one and the ruler that comes. All right, now, to understand back in verse 25... When it says to anoint the most holy, what it's talking about, you and it just says most holy. In the rest of the passage, when it talks about the anointed, it's talking about a person. So if I'm going to to follow good hermeneutics, good exegesis, that has to be talking about the one who's coming, the anointed one. But what I want you to see is that Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem will be rebuilt in times of trouble, and exactly that's what the whole book of Nehemiah was about. And then, in, Dan, in Daniel 9, 26, now, after 62 sevens, the anointed one, now the first sevens had to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem, then there was going to be 62 sevens, all right? And the anointed one, and after the 62 sevens, like when they end, this is going to happen. The anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolations have been decreed. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? And it's really important to see what's happening here is that there's going to be a time after the 62 sevens, all right? Now remember, there was one seven, and in those sevens, Jerusalem was rebuilt, and then there are 62 sevens after that. So there's a total of 69 sevens, and there's one seven left, because remember, there were 70 sevens. There's one seven left, and look at what happens here, okay? And, And this is where the confusion starts, about this one seven that's left. Now, those who promote the idea of a seven-year tribulation, this is what they do. They say, okay, right here, they put on their own filter, and they say, okay, the prophetic clock stops, and the last seven-year period doesn't happen for another 2,000 years. And the last seven-year period has to do with the Antichrist, Now, the problem is there's nothing here that suggests 
that at all. I mean, you can read it. There, there's nothing that would suggest. Now, what happened, and I've gone over this before, is that there was a guy named Darby, and he said that he had received special revelation from God, much the same way that the Book of Mormon came to Joseph Smith, and that God showed him that that there was a great pause here, and that this was actually all about the Antichrist that's going to come. And it, if you think about that, it's, it, it's almost unbelievable that, that anyone at the time would have believed that. But this happened at a time in the 1830s when the church was going through much tribulation and it was being highly um, attacked by neo-Orthodoxy and fundamental Christianity was being shown to be out of touch, out of date, to be wrong. So when Darby came with this interpretation and with the idea that the church was going to be taken out of any trouble, it was so, um, people wanted to believe it and people rallied around it and it became uh, a, a, fundam- a fundamental belief and you, it defined a fundamental Christian. If you were a fundamental Christian, you believed that. And America was especially, in, in certain parts, um, affected by this. But the problem is, you, you don't see that there at all. It's, it's not there, all right? Now, the wrong approach to the book of Daniel has been the filter through which most eschatology is viewed. Now, let's take a clear look at what Daniel is saying. Now, there are two events uh, that will happen with two characters, okay? The anointed one is going to be cut off and have nothing. And then there is the ruler who will come, and he's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Those are the two events of the passage we, we just looked at. All right, now I want to read verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. All right, that's pretty clear. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Okay, and then it says, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed and is poured out on him. Now, here's where the confusion comes, is that people look at this and they don't understand the linguistic pattern that's happening here. Paul does this a lot. It's called an A-B, an A-B. And what I mean by this is that, I'll give you an example. Here it is. David went to the store. John robbed a bank. He went home. He went to prison. Now, Two people are mentioned in in my sentence, David, who went to the store, and John, who robbed the bank. In the second one, he went home. Who am I referring to? I'm referring to David, who went to the store. He went to prison. Who am I referring to? I'm referring to John, who robbed the bank. And Paul does this so often, and you can find it in the Hebrew writings, and it was common in that day to do A, B, A, B, and to understand the context. Now, let's go on a little because this will be very clear. The first he uh, goes back to the anointed one. 
it talks about the anointed one, okay? And in the last of the seven, the last seven years, okay? Now, the first, um, the first um, 483 years have come up to the time of Christ. So now we're in the, the last seven years, and he confirms a, a covenant with many. Well, who did that? It was Jesus. Listen to Matthew twenty six twenty eight. The the words in the Septuagint. Okay, the the, the Bible that the uh, the people at the time of Jesus used was the Septuagint. It was written in in Greek, and of course the old the New Testament. Most of it was written in Greek, and you can see that the phrase from Daniel is repeated in Matthew. This is the blood of of the covenant. <clears throat> excuse me, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He makes a covenant with many. Jesus did that. Now, in the middle of the last seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, when did this happen? In the middle of the ministry of Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus ministered for three and a half years. So in the middle of the seven years, he, again, going back to the anointed, will, will put an end to sacrifice. All right, listen. Jesus ministered for three and a half years to the house of Israel. At the end of that time, he was put to death. And when this happened, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Now, you can look up Matthew 15, 24. It talks about Jesus going to the house of Israel. And you can look at Matthew 27, 51, uh, that talks about um, him um, tearing the curtain when he died. And that's really important. And he put an end to sacrifice and offerings. Now, listen, the whole book of Hebrews is about that putting an end to sacrifice and offerings. I'm just going to read one passage. Hebrews 10, 8 through 10. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. This is Christ speaking. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. So in the middle of the three and a half years, Jesus is put to death. He puts an end to sacrifice. No more sacrifice. No more offerings on the part of sin because Jesus is the once and for all final sacrifice. Now, for the next three and a half years of that seven, what happens is the disciples ministered to the house of Israel. They ministered to the Jews totally. And then at the end of that seven, what happens is that Paul was sent to the Gentiles. You can look up the timing. In the last seven years, Jesus ministers for three and a half years. He atones for sin. He puts an end to sacrifice. He ushers in righteousness. And he died. When he dies, 
For the next three and a half years to complete that seven sevens, the apostles go and preach to the house of Israel. And at the end of that three and a half years, coincidentally enough, is when Paul is commissioned to finally go to the Gentiles. Isn't that beautiful? It's just so beautiful. Now, the second he goes back to the ruler who will come. All right? He will come. He's future. And he will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what's meant by that? And, and I want to, to, you to hear the words of Jesus again. Now, listen to what he says in Luke 13, 14, 13, 34, and 35. Luke 13, 34, and 35. This is important. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I will tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus here is is looking at the destruction of Jerusalem and he uses that word desolate. Again, in the Septuagint uh, Bible, that word is exactly the same in Daniel as it is here in Luke. And he says, listen, the destruction of Jerusalem will be that desolation, that desolation. Now, again, listen to Luke 21, 5 and 6. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Wow. And then in 70 AD, the ruler that was going to come and his people came and Titus, who was the Roman ruler, attacked the city of Jerusalem on Passover of all days. Listen to this. 1.1 million Jews were killed. Almost 100,000 were taken into captivity. The temple was looted, defiled, and completely destroyed. Not one stone was standing on another. All the priests were killed. There has not been one animal sacrificed since that day. Can you see what happened and what Jesus predicted that would happen and what he put an end to because of his sacrifice and what he brought in because his sacrifice Now, I want you to appreciate something about historical interpretation because other than Darby putting on this filter and making up the idea that the events of of Daniel 9 refer to the Antichrist, he's the one that's going to set up a covenant uh, with many and put an end to sacrifice. It totally takes it out of contest. 
But do you know that not one of the apostles in any of the writings refer to the passage of this passage of Daniel as talking about the tribulation? Think about that. Not one of the apostles in any of their writings refer to Daniel 9 as talking about the tribulation. Not only that, none of the church fathers who came after the apostles looked at John, or excuse me, at Daniel chapter 9 and said, oh yeah, this is talking about the great tribulation. Now don't you think that if this was a true doctrine about these seven years, don't you think they would have confirmed it and expanded on it as they do with all the other doctrines that are important. Can you see how, how you've been robbed from understanding what the book of Revelation is all about by this terrible misinterpretation of Daniel? And it has robbed the church uh, for years and years. Now, I want to share with you the third thing that I want to look at. And I think I'll probably stop here because this is a lot for you to get. Is Revelation's dynamic time frame. Do you know, as I said before, seven years is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation. And if it would have, if it were true that the tribulation is going to last seven years, it, it would have um, been mentioned as I said before, by the apostles, and especially the book of Revelation. But there is a dynamic time frame that is mentioned in the book of Revelation that's really important for us to stand, uh, understand and to, and to stand in appreciation of. And it's the time three and one-half years. Now, this is mentioned seven different times in different ways, all right? And that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Seven different times, three and a half years is mentioned. First of all, and, and you can look these up, Revelation um, 11, 1 and 2, it's 42 months, okay? That's three and a half years. Revelation 11, 3. Revelation 11, 3. 1260 days. That's three and a half years. Revelation 12, 12. Time, times, half a time. Okay, that's time, one. Times, that's two more. That's three. Half a time, that's half. So three and a half. Revelation 13, 5. 42 months. Okay. Revelation 11, 9 through 11. Now, it's mentioned twice here, but it's three and a half days, okay? So the time of three and a half, whether it's years or days, is mentioned seven times, and it's mentioned as days, as months, and as years. And isn't that fascinating? That's the number. And, and what people will do, you have a whole other <clears throat> group of people that say, well, that means that the tribulation is going to only last three and a half years. Well, no, it's still, this is a symbol for something, and, and we, we've got to get the symbol. Now, 
John's readers would, would make an Old, Old Testament connection. When they would read three and a half, three and a half, three and a half, repeat it over and over again, and if you look at the context of those, those, all of those have to do with oppression and with tribulation and with trouble. All of them have to do with that. But they would go, oh my goodness, I know what God's trying to tell us with that symbol. It's going to be just like Elijah, okay? Now listen to Luke 24, or excuse me, Luke 4, 25. But in truth, and this is Jesus speaking, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and three years and six months, and a great famine came came over all the land. So, Jesus is talking about eschatology here, and he said, "Listen, um, it's it, it's it's there. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the, the heavens were were shut up, shut up and shut off, and it was for three years and six months." All right, the reference to Elijah. James 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Now, now do you see how the early church would have gone, whoa, in what's being talked about in all of these passages, and I, me- I mentioned seven passages, and you can look them up, uh, it, it, the tribulation that's going on, on like that, it's going to be just like Elijah, okay? Now, three and a half years is the amount of time Elijah was hidden away by God when King Ahab and Jezebel were, were trying to kill him, and it was during that time that Yahweh's miraculous power and provision were made known to him. <clears throat> Isn't that really cool? Okay, so the idea here is just as Yahweh was able to protect Elijah and a remnant of the priest from the terrible persecutions of Ahab and Jezebel, in the same way Jesus is able to protect his saints in the middle of tribulation and in the middle of persecution. Isn't that cool? But there's one other important symbol There's one other important symbol in three and a half, and I alluded to it before. Three and a half is the amount of time that Jesus ministered. Isn't that interesting? Jesus ministered for the exact amount of time that Elijah was hidden away and provided for. And don't we see that with Jesus? That the Father was with Jesus And during that time, he could not be put to death. They tried to put him to death, and he would just walk through their midst. They couldn't do it because in that time, the Father was with him. The Father was protecting him. And it was not until he had to put an end to sacrifice and atone for sin that he was allowed to die. And the Father put him to death for you and me. Well, I'm going to continue on with the last three. Uh, I've gone over um, so far, and um, I think it's the sense of the book, the myth of the seven years, and 
Revelation's dramatic time frame. In the next in the next podcast, which I will do probably in about three or four weeks, I'm going to go over the missing church, the great deception, and the church and the wrath of God. And it's all going to be from Revelation, uh, pretty much, for the first few verses and then some other verses in Revelation. But what I want you to see, it's very important here, is that you have to have uh, a biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is that there is this great, great battle that the dragon, the devil, gives his power and authority to two beasts. There is the beast that rises up out of the sea. The beast that rises up out of the sea is the political, the, the economic, the social, industrial. It is that whole complex that controls the lives of people. Satan gives his authority to to that. You might want to read Revelation 12 and 13. And the other beast is the one that rises up out of the land. And if you read in Revelation 13, it is the religious system that that has a, a, a... a sense of godliness, but denies its real power, as it says in Scripture. Um, they profess to know Jesus, and they even do miracles in his name, but they don't know him. The apostate church. And boy, that is being raised up today. So many churches are compromising and are not standing for biblical truth, because they are afraid. And I'll tell you, the idea that the church should not be political is a false idea. And I don't know where that came from, but where would we be without Wilberforce, and, and, and who was a Christian evangelist and minister who preached against slavery, as did some others of his time, and that is what really influenced uh, uh, people so much. And, and Abraham Lincoln and so many people were influenced by that. And, and, or Martin Luther King. And one of the great, great tragedies, and, and you can read about it, is during Nazi Germany's rise, uh, the Lutheran church, the state church in Germany, did not speak out un- it, until it was too late. And yet that the person that, that did speak out and, and was very political and said, no, this is wrong, you cannot do this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put to death, as many others, both Protestant and Catholic, who stood up, uh, priests that stood up and said, no, this is wrong, were put to death. And so that idea uh, that the church cannot be political is, is just, it's so wrong. It's so unbiblical. Uh, the church today, unless it stands for biblical truth, uh, it will be destroyed. Uh, it will be destroyed from the inside out. So I know you brothers and sisters are, are better than that. Think about what I've said. Study the scriptures uh, to make yourself approved. Uh, be the good Bereans and <clears throat> study them to see if what I say is true. Until next time, God bless and keep you.